You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. And we turn to our scripture readings for this morning. In the first place from 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 to 20. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. And David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the King. We go over to the New Testament to... Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. And we'll read there from verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, but by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, 
how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Finally, we go to the last book of the Bible, the Revelation to John. And there we read from chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders asked him, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him night and day in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This morning we're going to look at Lord's Day 48 of the Hatterberg Catechism. What is the second petition? Thy kingdom come, that is, so rule us by thy word and spirit that more and more we submit to thee. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil every power that raises itself against thee, and every conspiracy against thy holy word. Do all this until the fullness of thy kingdom comes, wherein thou shalt be all in all. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was Monday, March 10th, 1522, the famous German reformer Martin Luther was faced with a big problem. The Reformation was gaining momentum and large numbers of young men were coming to Wittenberg 
They were coming there to sit under his teaching. They were passionate about the truths that were being rediscovered from the scriptures. They were zealous about the Christian life. In fact, their passionate zeal was what had caused the problem on this particular Monday. You know, students can get into all kinds of trouble on the weekend. Well, Luther's students had spent the weekend bursting into the homes of the German nobility. These upper-class men and women were still practicing Roman Catholics. They even had private altars in their homes for the saying of Mass. The students were bursting into these homes, busting in and destroying the altars and creating a big fuss, huge controversy. And this caused the problem of threatening to destroy the progress of the Reformation in Germany. If you didn't have the nobility on your side, you were in big trouble. But more importantly, it showed that Luther's students didn't really understand something about God's kingdom. So Luther gathered together his students on this Monday morning, and he taught them. He said, you know, students, you're right. You're right to see the abhorrence of the mass, but you're wrong to go into private homes and tear out the altars because the Reformation cannot come by force. It can only come by the Word of God. You can tear up the altars and even pull people away from the altars by their hair. But as soon as you leave them, put back the altar, and to the altar again they go. We should preach the Word, but the results must be left solely to God's good pleasure. Certainly to hold the Mass in such a manner is sinful, and yet no one should be dragged from it by the hair, for it should be left to God. His Word should be allowed to work alone, without interference. And Luther went on to say, Why? Because it is not in my power to handle or fashion the hearts of men as the potter molds the clay and fashions them at his pleasure. Their hearts I cannot reach. I can get no further than their ears. And since I cannot pour faith into their hearts, I cannot, nor should I, force anyone to have faith. That is God's work alone. He is the one who causes faith to live in the heart. Therefore, we should give free course to the Word of God and not add our works to it. If you preach the Word and trust the Word, the Word will sink into the heart and do its work. God would accomplish more with His Word than if you and I were to merge all our power into one heap. See, Luther's students didn't know something fundamental about the way God works in this world. God brings His kingdom. Sure, he uses instruments, but those instruments are only two. His Word and His Holy Spirit. God uses His Word and His Holy Spirit to bring about the recognition and the reality of His royal dominion in the universe. And so at the root, it is God's kingdom and it is God's work to bring it about. And we see this in the model prayer that our Lord Jesus teaches us as well. And so when the Lord Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come, he again, he wants us to have God's plan. He wants us to have God's priorities foremost in our hearts. 
And so I preach to you God's Word this morning with this theme, the Lord teaches us to pray for God to bring His kingdom. And we'll see that God's kingdom is one of power, second of all, grace, and then finally, glory. A few weeks back, you may remember that we looked at some of the differences between God's kingship and the kingships that we find here on earth. We looked at Psalm 145. We looked at that in connection with Lord's Day 46. And we saw that there are many things that set God's majesty apart. In many ways, His majesty is unique. Well, in 1 Chronicles 29, we find one more thing in which God's rule is completely different from that of earthly rulers. Just like in Psalm 145, we have here words of praise from David. But unlike in Psalm 145, we have the historical context very clearly laid out in 1 Chronicles 29. King David is about to transfer his kingdom over to his son Solomon, along with the responsibility to build the temple. At this point, David was at the height of his rule. In fact, it seems that the promises of God about the boundaries of Israel in Numbers 34, well, those promises had been fulfilled in his time. We all know that David had his struggles and David had his difficulties. But there was no question that he was a, a king of great power. His kingdom was one of great power. And that makes it all the more amazing to hear these words of praise from David in First Chronicles 29. Because he doesn't take the credit for himself. He doesn't heap up praise on his own name. He doesn't heap up praise on the name of Israel. He doesn't sound like a modern politician, somebody who, who might say, you know, we've built a country that we can be proud of. Instead, David points to God. He gives all the praise. He gives all the thanks to Him and Him alone. Moreover, King David recognizes God's kingship as being entirely different. He knows that his kingly power is limited. It's fleeting. In fact, David is getting near death. He can feel his body getting weaker. But he says about God in verse 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. And then in verse 12, Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. He says that God is the king whose power is incomparable. David only rules this little corner of creation called Israel. But God rules the whole thing, the whole creation. God is the supreme king before whom all people including David, have to bow. That helps us to understand something of the character of the kingdom that we're taught to pray about in the second petition. If we try to define it, the kingdom of God is simply His rule over the world and everything in it. You know, we don't define the kingdom of God in, in geographical terms. 
God's kingdom has no borders, for instance. Instead, we define the kingdom of God in terms of the exercise of power, the exercise of dominion. You want to put it simple? God's kingdom means God rules. And He rules with power over all that's been created. There's nothing, not even one atom, that falls outside His royal rule. His is a kingdom of power. And when we say that, we're really making reference to what we call God's omnipotence. Omnipotence simply means that God is all-powerful. God is able to do whatever He wills in the way in which He wills it. The angel said it to Mary in Luke 1.37, for nothing is impossible with God. Again, a reference to God's omnipotence. Why? Because He has the power to rule over creation as He wills. Okay, so now how does this connect to the Lord's Prayer and then also to our prayers in general? Well, we pray for God's kingdom to come. Right. But this aspect of God's kingdom, the fact that it is a kingdom of power, it's already there in all its fullness. No one can add or take away from the fact that God's kingdom is powerful to the maximum degree. So what the Lord is teaching us to pray in this respect is something different. Christ is teaching us to pray that we would more and more recognize that power and live accordingly. We have to see that God's kingdom is one of power and then let this recognition impact our lives. And what will that look like? Well, the catechism says, so rule us by thy word and spirit that more and more we submit to thee. God uses instruments in our lives so that we recognize his rule and then we live thankfully in an appropriate way. And the instruments or means are simply a game. His Word and His Holy Spirit. And you know, these two are always working together. Through the Holy Spirit working with the Bible, we more and more listen to what God wants for our lives. We become more and more the image of Christ. And again, you've heard me say this before, but I can't say it enough. This is about our sanctification. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying for His rule in our lives, not just to be a, you know, a factoid or a, a piece of trivia. We're praying for God's rule to be a reality, living color, something that impacts our lives meaningfully. The King of power speaks, and things change in our lives. The King of power speaks, and our lives are transformed by His power. We're praying that God would bring us to see His royal power. And recognizing that power changes our lives. It also brings us comfort. We know that our lives are under His royal dominion. He rules us with power. And you know, it's not raw power. No, this, this power is molded. It's shaped by the love that He has for us. And seeing that brings us to praise Him in ever greater measures. God is a king unlike any other. Our entire lives should be filled with a, a prayerful longing to see Him honored through us and others. 
Rebellion towards this king is intolerable. It's sad to say, but the world in which we live doesn't look at it like that. They don't see, they don't recognize a, a king of power who will someday be their judge. They live in mockery. They live in denial. They live in rebellion today. But someday all of this will be publicly exposed and the king of power will be vindicated. And that has implications for us too. Because we have heard about this king's reign in clear and direct language. Most unbelievers have heard little about the king. Enough to make them without excuse, according to Romans 1. But still, relatively speaking, relative to what we know, they have heard very little. But we are different. We are going to be held accountable for what we did with what we knew, with what we heard about our king. He will say to us in that day, you knew that I was a king of power. How did you then pray? How did you live? Through Christ's work in us, we should be able to say that we prayed for ourselves to fall in submission to this King, our King. We should be able to say that by the power of the Spirit working in us, we sought to live in submission to this King of power. Now let's look at how God's kingdom is one of grace. And we should all know the basic definition of grace. So fundamental, so important. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Because of our sins, we deserve God's eternal wrath. But because of Jesus Christ, because we are in Him by faith, we receive God's eternal favor and love. Grace is the essence of the Christian faith. We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Now, it may not appear that way from a superficial reading, but the Catechism speaks of God's grace in Lord's Day 48 when it says, Preserve and increase thy church. You think about it for a moment. How is it that God preserves His church through the ages? Well, He works through the Holy Spirit by the preaching and by the teaching of His Holy Word. The preaching of the Word is a means of grace. It is a means by which God's grace in Jesus Christ is proclaimed, both in our justification and in our sanctification. We're told, we're taught how Jesus Christ graciously redeems us from our sins by His obedience, by His suffering, by His resurrection. We're told how Christ graciously sanctifies our lives by the ongoing work of His Holy Spirit. And so the the preservation of the church is completely a matter of God's grace. After all, God doesn't owe it to the church to preserve it. We certainly don't deserve this from God. But God, in His good pleasure, He wills it. He wills to preserve a people for Himself. And by His grace, He also wills to increase His church. And here again, this happens through the means of grace, particularly through the preaching of the Word. Through the preaching of the Word in mission settings and also 
in established congregations like this, unbelievers are confronted with the command to repent and believe the gospel. By the gracious working of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, they respond in obedience to this command. And they're then joined to God's people. All of this, too. This is God ruling with grace. You can see that there's a connection between the church and the kingdom of God. You know, some people like to to set up a a fairly rigid distinction between the two. And to be sure, there are differences. The kingdom of God is broader than the church. But the church definitely falls in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is simply His rule in the world. And, And doesn't the church also fall under that? And nowhere is the gracious aspect of God's kingdom more clear than in the church where we find the means of grace. Now, God does show His grace outside the church too. You think, for example, the fact that God makes the sun shine and the rain fall on unbelievers as well as believers. Nobody deserves to have that. But it's especially in the church, in its preservation and increase, that we clearly see the King of grace in all His splendor. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying for His grace to be shown more and more. And that also applies to the destruction of the works of the devil. Remember, the devil is not interested in giving people what they don't deserve. Satan only wants to cause destruction, what people really deserve. But more than that, his intent is also to destroy God's works of grace. He wants to destroy the church, wipe it out, obliterate it if he could, the church where the means of grace are found. And then there's not only the devil, there are also other powers that rise up against God. Human powers. There are conspiracies against the Word of God. There are persecutions and sufferings brought upon the church. All these enemies are there trying to destroy grace. They hate it when they see people receiving from God what they don't deserve. They're filled with revulsion at God's goodness. And when we pray in the spirit of the second petition, we're praying that God would not allow these evil plans, these evil efforts to come to fruition. We're praying that God's kingdom of grace would continue to rule in this world and increase in strength. God's gracious rule will continue in our lives and in the lives of others. God wants us to pray to Him for that and trust Him entirely that this will happen. Romans 5.21, we read about the rule of grace in our lives. Paul says that there is sin in our lives, but it does not rule us. Instead, grace rules through righteousness. This is the righteousness of Christ given to us. It brings us to eternal life. And so we're not ruled by sin and death, but by grace. And what we have to see in this passage in Romans 5.21, when it says grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, what's happening there is that grace is being personified. Grace is being spoken about as if it were a person. 
Well, there's a good reason for that. Because grace is not an abstract theological concept. Grace is an attribute, a characteristic of a person. And the person is God. God is the king. God is the king characterized by grace. And so when Romans 5.21 says that we are ruled by grace, it really means that we are ruled by the God of grace. So then what does it mean to pray for the coming of the kingdom? First of all, we saw a few moments ago that the power of God's kingdom, the power is already present fully. You know, it's different with the aspect of grace. When we talk about God's kingdom being one of grace, there's an already but not yet aspect to it. God's kingdom of grace is already being experienced in the lives of God's people. But it is not yet being fully experienced in our lives or in the lives of others who God might still yet draw into the church. That means that when we pray for the coming of the kingdom, we pray for God to indeed bring in the full number of the elect, those whom God has chosen. We pray for God to increase the church through through mission, but also through and in this local congregation of Christ. Now that's a, a very general kind of prayer. We can also pray more particularly, and I think we should. We can and we should pray earnestly for the salvation of particular people who God brings across our path. You see that general way of praying for God to increase the church, but also to pray for individual people who we might meet? That's the not yet aspect. Then there's the already. That means that we also pray earnestly for ourselves. And we pray for other believers that we would continue to live under the reign of grace, that we would grow under the reign of grace. We pray that we would continue to see Christ working in us and among us to transform our lives into His image. Praying for God's kingdom also means seeing that His kingdom is one of glory. And that's our last point this morning. You know, the last line of answer 123 it's partly a direct quote from 1 Corinthians 15:28 so that God may be all in all. Now this statement looks ahead to something that isn't currently the situation. In other words, right now God is not all in all. But a day is coming when he will be. And we see something of that day in what we read from Revelation 7. Here too there's also an already but not yet aspect to God's kingdom. His kingdom is here in its aspect of glory, but not yet in its full measure. In other words, God's kingdom is already receiving praise and honor. But in the future, a day is coming when this king and his kingdom will be glorified in a way that simply blows your mind. This coming day again, involves the preservation and especially the increase of the church. Because God's plan is to bring believers from all nations, tribes, peoples, and languages into the recognition of His rule. Being 
and staying under his rule, they will give him the glory. That's what we see happening in Revelation 7. We see there something of God's incredible genius, his wisdom. Because God knows that a choir singing in parts sounds much more beautiful than a choir that only sings in unison. Bringing in people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds is part of God's plan for His kingdom to receive maximum praise and glory. Now, isn't it fascinating when you read Revelation 7 that you get the, the picture there? It's not of a multitude of people who are all the same, who are all carbon copies of each other. Oh, sure, they all sing the same song and they praise the same God, but they keep their unique cultural backgrounds. This shows that God values diversity among His people. And He uses and He will use that diversity to magnify the glory of His royal rule. And so with that picture of Revelation 7 in our minds, how should we be praying? How should we be living? Well, we should pray and live as people for whom the kingdom of glory is a present and a coming reality. Those who live under God's rule today, they make His glory a priority in how they live and how they pray. We are God's subjects. We acknowledge His royal rule. Therefore, when we pray, we tell God that we long to see the day when His kingdom will get the maximum praise and glory designed. That means, too, that mission or prayer for mission and evangelism is also a priority for us. We pray also for God to use us individually. And when we say these prayers, we pray them from hearts that really long to see these things. And having hearts that long for these things means that we also we look for open doors where God will use us. We look for and we pray for opportunities. And when God brings these opportunities to us, when He opens the doors, we walk in in faith and obedience, always eager to speak about our Lord and His glory. And through all this, we can prayerfully look forward to the day when God will be all in all. What does that exactly mean, anyway? God will be all in all. John Calvin put it this way, Paul's words mean nothing but this, that all things will be brought back to God as their sole beginning and end, that they may be closely bound to Him. In other words, many people today, they disconnect existence, life, and everything from God. They pretend as if all those things have nothing to do with God. But the day is coming when it will be clearly made known to everyone that existence, life, everything are bound up in God. Paul put it in a different way in Acts 17.28, For in God we live and move and have our being. The day is coming when it will be plainly made known to all creation that God is the sovereign King. God will bring it to pass. And so when we pray for the coming of God's kingdom, we're really praying for the fulfillment of all His plans for us, for the church, and for the world. We're praying that the good things already in place under His rule will remain. 
We're praying that the good things to come from His rule will come quickly. We're praying these things not so that God would become king, but that He would be recognized by all creatures as king. And already some do, but not yet all. May the Lord come quickly so that the day would come when all willingly submit to His sovereign eternal rule. And may we, brothers and sisters, may we also be eager subjects today and every day, willing to serve Him until the fullness of the kingdom comes, when He shall be all in all. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.